back. Kicking off June with Behind the Lens. Hard to believe we're almost halfway through the year already. It's moving very quickly. It's moving a lot more quickly than 2020. But we still have a lot of the 2020 holdover ramifications happening. But welcome. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, actors, composers, costume designers, production designers, editor, film editors, digital editors, sound editors, sound mixers, you name, authors, you name it, and we talk to them. Um, if you're tuning in right now, you're listening on AdrenalineRadio.com or you're watching the uh, Facebook live stream on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. Sorry, folks, if you're watching. I don't have a very exciting tablescape for you today. But if you are watching on the Facebook feed, you will see front and center. I'm so excited. Ruta Lee has written an autobiography, The Legend Herself. Consider your, consider your ass kissed. I can't recommend this book highly enough. We're going to talk more about Ruta and her book next week. But I just want to give, we did almost three hours of, inter, uh, over two hours of interviews uh, in the course of, of three days and phone calls. Uh, I'm still in the editing process. Um, Ruta and I have a tendency to use a lot of profanity sometimes. So we... <laughs> Trying to trim, Pam sitting in there laughing. So uh, trimming that and putting that together for you. So you're undoubtedly going to be hearing that next week on the show. Um, But in the meantime, I can't encourage you, if you want some great Hollywood, old Hollywood stories that are personalized, that are really fun to read, um, definitely get this book. You can actually order it, a signed autographed copy you can order from Larry Edmonds Bookstore in Hollywood. Or if you're in Hollywood, you can just go trotting on down there and uh, you can get a signed copy of Ruta's autobiography. And uh, she's already thinking of a sequel. Already thinking of a follow-up. Uh, so get ready. But I adore Ruta. Uh, Pat Buttram introduced us almost 40 years ago, 39 years ago, at Tale of the Cock, uh, in Sherman Oaks, Tale of the Cock was right there diagonal from Sportsman's Lodge uh, at Coldwater Canyon and Ventura Boulevard. And Pat had took me there for lunch and Ruta liked to go there for lunch. And he hauled me over. And that was the first time that Ruta and I met each other. And uh, she is, I just adore her, adore her. Uh, and of course, we've had many encounters over the years. But so I can't wait to get that interview all put together for you for next week. But seriously, Larry Edmonds Bookstore. The book is in many bookstores, but for that autographed copy, if you want that, you, and trust me, because she personalizes, even though she doesn't know who the book is going to, it's not just her signature that she's putting in a book. She's actually writing little messages to the reader. Uh, so get it. It is a delight. It is fun. You will laugh your ass off. And if you know Ruta and you know her voice, you're going to, as you read this book, you will hear her voice through the whole thing. So there is my big Ruta plug for today until we get to her more of her next week. But 
very excited about today. Um, we've got a, uh, we're going to be talking about a legend at the midpoint of the show when we have filmmaker, writer, director, editor, producer, Harry Mavromakalis. And I hope I said that right. It's Greek. Um, he is the filmmaker behind the documentary on Olympia Dukakis called Olympia. Uh, the, the documentary takes on a lot of poignancy now since we just lost Olympia last month. Uh, this is Harry's feature documentary debut. And the documentary is amazing. And I can't wait to talk to him about it. It was made over the course of several years. And it's chock full of archival footage and interviews. And um, the bulk of it are just ruminations uh, in the course of a day. Uh, by Olympia. So I can't wait for Harry uh, to join us. But before then, um, you're going to hear in a moment here my exclusive with director Michael Hausman and his new film, Edge of the World. Wow. I love historical films. And Edge of the World is the true story of British adventurer Sir James Brooke. He fought pirates. He fought slavery and headhunters and went on to rule, to explore Borneo and to rule the kingdom. It was larger than England uh, in the 1840s. Uh, it is a fascinating story. Brooke gets himself crowned Raja. Um, it, it's just there are massacres. This is brought to life in such detail and Michael actually shot this on location in Sarawak, Malaysia. Um, we are steeped. We are immersed in that world of 1839-1840. Uh, stars Jonathan Rhys-Myers, uh, Dominic Monaghan, Josie Ho. It is just... And then quite a few Malaysian actors. So well done. I was engrossed. From beginning to end, it is a fascinating historical narrative. So, since I've already gabbed and we are running a little behind, since it's a 28-minute interview, let's take a listen to my exclusive interview with Michael Hausman talking about Edge of the World, which you can see right now on VOD and on digital. Take a listen. Greetings, how are you? I am delighted to be talking to you about this film that... As Lee can tell you, I am so in love with. Yeah, Lee did tell me. That's great. I, I, I find that wonderful. I, Thank you so much. I was engrossed from beginning to end. This truly is. It's not only a fascinating historical narrative, but it's eye-opening uh, historically and culturally. And by shooting in Malaysia and Sarawak, oh my God, Michael, you have you and your cinematographer have immersed us, blanketed us in this bubble, so that this looks like all there is to the world is this one little kingdom in Borneo, and it and you can understand and appreciate what we're seeing Brooke try to do, and you know get abolish headhunting and slavery and piracy and all of this and why because of the beauty of nature. And the way you present the beauty with the blood is 
incredible, and it makes it so visceral, but at the same time, very serene and very emotional. That's great. I mean, I'm glad you picked up on, like, all these things. You know, because to me, everything kind of starts with, to create the visuals and to motivate everything. To me, that's the start from a point of view, and that's the camera point of view and everything else. That point of view is James Brooke. And to me, it's like the character that I love. I, I consider him like a Che Guevara in Malaysia. And I say that because it's actually, he's, he's kind of like that. You know, he ran away from England trying to look. He knew he had a higher cause somewhere, and he, would, he went searching. And in the search, you know, he discovers Borneo, and it is not only kind of the place that's going to take him as well, but it, it's everything that he ever wanted. You know, he's kind of like one of the first you know, conservationists, you know, freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. And he was taking in all these plants, you know, everything about him, traveling the world, and here was this place that was, you know, which it really is. Everything had everything he wanted, and, and, and the people he fell in love with, the, everything was equal to him. He was a very interesting guy in the sense of, you know, to me, we needed to make a dirty, sweaty, slightly insane period piece. Instead of it being a period piece where the camera sits back and watches people perform, we need to be on his shoulder and live and breathe and taste everything with him. That's why the voiceover suddenly became more of a personality as the editor because we wanted to know more about what his thoughts were. And with that, you know, the, the fact that he, he hit the guy, he even hold a crocodile on trial because he had hurt, killed a man. So a crocodile equal to a man was equal to a tree. He was like a pagan Buddhist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, so you have this, I, to me, it's, a, it's a, a freedom fighter, a pagan Buddhist, a conservationist. You have like all these wonderful things which, which are really relevant today. Very much um, so. And, you know, he comes in here and he liberates these people from these kind of corruption of these Brunei princes and everything. And then he fights against his own country to keep them liberated. So all of these things you have to say, well, okay, how do you achieve that? And it's what you said, which is the beauty and the blood. There's a moment where you, you know, at the end, I think those words are really relevant when he says, you know, I am lost, but now I'm found. Mm -hmm. There's a threshold you must break through, I think, in order to really discover yourself. And I think that when he finally takes the head of someone else, which is, he has preached against it the whole time, he's, he's kind of said, Everything can be equal. Everyone can be the same. Everything can be this, but we can't take heads. It's barbaric. It's this. And it's when you challenge your final, I guess, your morals and values, you know, what your compass is. When that's finally shooken, which he realized at the end, and he's become, he really has become that. And I, and I, and I believe that there was plenty of filmmakers that we were shooken to get a stage. You right. know, I went in with the same philosophy as James Brooke. I wanted to carve every boat out of logs, create our camera boats out of, you know, how they would do it, make everything there, you know, be as, as anti, and my own philosophy is kind of to go in, you can't force your way of doing things, you must adapt. And when it's a jungle, and when it's the people who have never filmed anything there, you know, they, they, it's just there is no film community, there is no casting location, any of that, you bring all that in, and you create that in the jungle. So when you start to, you know, you're doing a period piece and it's, you want it dirty and you want it sweaty and you want to feel the real thing and that's really happening. And that's mm -hmm. what it was, you wanted to inhabit these places and live in them and make them be real. And that kind of happens, but I think there is a moment where you, 
you do like James Brook, you you become insane in a certain sense. You go over the edge and you have to you have to really succumb to that jungle, which is your enemy and your you know, and the most beautiful thing on the planet. You know, one minute it's, it looks so idyllic and it's this beautiful, lazy moment and you just stop doing everything and you're, you can't believe the sheer beauty of it. Next minute, a monsoon is racing down with rainforest-sized trees coming at you like lances and washing away your set. You know, so you must live on that coin all the time and, and you and you have to embrace that, like James Cook embraced it. And so that, that I think that that experience, you know, is... It's twofold. It's the character, and the, and the I think the actors had not had that challenge once have felt that. I mean, Jonathan Rhys Meyers is unbelievable. He's really, you know, um, I don't know what you thought of his performance, but to me, it was it was it was the real thing. And um, you know, uh, I think I'm spoiled with having worked with someone like that in this capacity because. He really, I think he embodied the character 100%, and I think it took him a little bit of time afterwards to shake out of that um, character. Well, and it was, a, you know, a real partner, you know, and I'll talk, I mean, just to have a partner in the film who was by my side every single moment of the day, from morning to night, you know, we never left each other's eyesight, we would jump in a pony, let's shoot this. Or we need a reflection of a flame on your face. You would hold a lighter there as he's crying. <laughs> and he's reflecting a lighter in his eye, you know, a flame in his eye. He would do everything. It was, it was the most amazing experience with him. Well, and I have to say, Jonathan, this is the best performance of his career, hands down. Because not only are we in his physical, the physical visual point of view, but with that voiceover, and with with Jonathan's performance, we're in in Brooks' mindset. Um, he gets this faraway, dreamlike look in his eyes, almost as if he's hypnotized by the world yeah. around him. And particularly when we get into Act Three, and uh, you know, after the attack and the decimation, and he's really, you know, you the expression you can't see the forest through the trees. Well, now he can finally see the whole of what the forest right. is, the blood and the beauty. But, you know, you wonder in the, some of those moments, is he a bit mad? We don't know. But his facial expressiveness and particularly his eyes and the way Jaime captures that with the camera gives us an ambiguity and questioning that, go, that is, it carries through the film. I mean, I was, I could not take my eyes off of him. And it, that, that voiceover just enhanced that even further. So that we're seeing, you know, he's, his mind and his mind, his mind's eye and the physical. And it's such a performance and such a construction from your standpoint. It's outstanding. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you, talk about all the elements working together, not just, you know, there was a relationship that Jaime, Jonathan, and myself had that we're all in the same bubble. And Jaime and Jonathan, Jonathan said, let's, you know, let's go do some stuff with this book and Jaime would go. But there was something also that Jaime, that people don't really know about, that, you know, he brought back these lenses that I think they were the exact name, and they might have been Panaflex lenses, but they were from the 70s, and they had a very 
shallow focus. Mm-hmm. So what it ended up doing was it ended up you, you have a very grand epic palette, but you have a very shallow focus. So things look everything in their paintings slightly. Yeah. So you were constantly focused on Jonathan, and everything around him was starting to look impressionistic in a sense, and that you know that just worked. But it was a really risky moment because you know the. I think we went through like two or three focus pours because, you know, you're, you're off by uh, two inches and it's like, you know, oh, shit, do it again. Um, so it was really risky, but my God, I think, it, it, you know, that's Jaime's call on that. It was just absolutely stunning. It, Beautiful, but I think that, yeah. Beautiful is an understatement for it. It worked so well, but then you take it a step further and that impressionistic painterly look melds perfectly with Brooks sketchings that he always does and then you bring that in with the epilogue Um, before we get to the end credits you've got the epilogue as we're turning pages of a sketchbook all done in in pencil and parchment so that painterly impressionistic look mirrors the very thing that Brooke did and that we see to finish out the film it really it's a wonderful marriage there that works a, th- a thread yeah, that carries. That's one of those silver linings of finishing a film during COVID, you know, is that you suddenly were realizing that you're ending and you're beginning credits and that, you know, you're, you had the time to actually get this right as opposed to, you know what I mean? There, there was some silver lining thing in doing the final post when everything was remote because everything was just taking longer and you were able to make long, uh, bigger creative decisions as opposed to reaction decisions mm-hmm. you know? so um yeah I, I i think so too i think that the credits are amazing that way well and you know and here again you know with what jaime picks up with the camera you know it's kudos to paul hashem your production designer um this is the attention to detail and the even to the the bamboo structural construct of brooks house that he lives in and some of the other areas we see the you know the the coring out of you know the log cabin style beam fit inside beam um the villages the the fort the canoes but then the set dress comes in with these touches of britain melding and marrying these worlds to a degree with the mosquito netting around the bed in china um you know yeah, and also his whole study was like this the, a lot of the inspiration I was drawing on was this uh, Wunder camera, this kind of room that would have these wonders of the world that would have, you know, everything from taxidermy animals to mm-hmm. an ostrich egg to... It was, a, it was a term that's, you know, not, it's been lost a little bit, but he kind of had this. You know, it, was, it was... That was his study. That was his thing. He carried this crates of, you know, of specimens. Everywhere <laughs> he went. South America. Yeah, so he had a, it, it, that room... You kind of want to spend a lot of time in there. Yeah. And luckily we do spend time, but yes, I would have liked to have spent even more time in there because that attention to detail and that set dress dress and specificity says so much about Brooke, especially when we find out later that his, his cousin Charles went and continued his work, you know, after, after, you know, James Brooke was gone. Charles continued. So you see how much this impacted um, Brooke and then how much that all impacted and rubbed off on 
the wide-eyed, innocent naivete of Cousin Charlie. So you've got a wonderful legacy happening there. And Brooke's legacy has lived on because of that and because of his voracious appetite for the world. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. where everything really comes, you know, the icing on the cake here, Will Bates. I've been a fan of Will Bates as a composer going back to, you know, when he uh, composed for Mike Cahill with Another Earth. But your score is so stunning. You, we get very intimate motifs that lead into sweeping majesty. And then Will's instrumentation we get cellos for sorrow and lamentation, um, buoyed and punctuated with Asian and Malaysian tones, and he really melds both worlds here. And yeah, you know, you know what? Working with Will, a really great way to work is we kind of do it um, not the normal way, which has become the normal way of film scoring. Is that people do a rough cut, they kind of put up different inspirational music tracks, you know, they call them rough cuts, whatever, you know, um, other people's music. And then the composer gets in, he kind of composes what he thinks. Will starts really early on, and we get him on as I'm shooting, even. And mm-hmm. he starts to sketch out pieces from looking at dailies and things. So by the time I'm starting to do my director's cut, I'm already using his music, pieces of it. Oh, wow. It, it, so, so imagine the advancement of that. So then he gives it to us in all the different tracks. So we're able to say, okay, this thing is really working. We're just going to use the harness for this. And she would think, I'll say, well, you know what? I'm going to change the instrument of this. And you just, it just is this constantly revolving piece. And, it's, and as we make a change, he makes a change. And if you do that, you end up with a really special soundtrack because you're all creating it together. And we're getting our cues visually. We, we may change the edit off of something he does musically. Yes. So, it really works well together like that. And it's not, unfortunately, you know, that used to be more prevalent, but now it's um, a lost way of working, um, and it's great. Yeah, I, I am so in love with this score, but it truly brings, you know, both the worlds together and captures all of the emotion, the hesitancy and, and of the people at wanting to believe, um, the power of the opposition... And this is also where your casting is so key. And I got to tell you, you have some, you elicited some incredible performances here, Michael. Um, Going beyond Jonathan, Otto Ferrant is Charlie. He is just, he is a delight. He is wonderful to see on screen. He is, he has the reactions to things that all of us would have if we suddenly were plopped down there. He asks the questions yeah. and thinks about... And, and, I, and I also love Ben Rudin. He's like, wow, he's, a, he's such a beautiful, uh, handsome, young boy. You know what I mean? That, like, yes. Really, in, I mean, that was such a... he never done anything before, you know? And it was done, I think, a small movie in Indonesia. But everyone that we were getting was from this area, so many, besides Otto, besides Hannah, besides Dominique, who I absolutely adore Dominique, and all, you know, it, all the other people that was talk about, and even like, you know, the, the um, John who plays 
John Peter, Peter John, Peter John, sorry, two first names, who plays, um, uh, oh God, I just forgot the name, um, uh, Tujang's father, um, I mean, he's, yeah, God, uh, he really comes from that heritage of that actual man. Um, why am I, why am I saying his name? Uh, um, oh, God, I'm not code or not. That's okay. Anyway. We'll find it. <laughs> yeah, whether it's totally names again. Um, but anyways, he's, you know, he, he's from Borneo. He's, he's never... Forget about acting. There was anything like this ever before, and, and, and so many people in this movie had never done anything like this before. So that was really fun to um, to see them come to life like that. It's great. Well, and I have to say, I mean, Yusef uh, Mahardika, who played Tu Zhang, Tu Zhang is one of the most fun characters. You broke my heart with what you did to him. Um, he brings this lightness and endearment um, and this whole little brother impishness and brattiness at times and it's so fun watching him and similarly Shahisi Sam who plays the translator Sabu oh my yeah, god he's, a, he's an amazing actor oh he's fabulous his the rules of the eyes oh, I was going to say that's you can, there's a real history that they built him and Jonathan, you can tell, you know, like, well, I mean, you, you got the fact that they've been with each other for a long time, you know, that was the story. But, I mean, as I'm watching him, you know, and as you said, the eye rolls and his and the head shake, especially when yeah. Brooke tells him to pay two shillings to a tribesman, no, two pounds, and he, the look on his face, it's like, man, are you crazy? Um, he's He is just a joy the performances you know because some of them we feel that um the idea that even dealing with brooke this is all new to them he's not native he's not indigenous so do we trust him do we not trust him do we like the trappings and the shiny things that he has but is that enough and you see trust slowly built and they really meld well with jonathan in bringing that to the fore for us to see. Yeah, and I think that that was the main drive behind. It was another part of Brooke about, you know, him wanting to be trusted, wanting to be, you know, not to be misunderstood. I think that that's the fact that you see them gaining the trust is super important. That's wonderful. That's great. That comes across. So now, what about this shoot? Because this had to be logistically very challenging for you going into these areas to shoot uh into the thick of the forest granted you got a river there so you can get boats and equipment and things in and out but how logistically challenging was it for you on the ground in I turn- it was the hardest this was the hardest thing i've ever done in my life a friend once asked me uh, like a fellow adventures of me you have done anything really hard in your life and I was about to say, yeah, of course, but then I said, we'll qualify that. And he says, no, like, you know, life risking, sheer willpower, hard. And I said, no, not really. And then, you know, three years later, I went off to do the film. And, and, and then I realized what that was. And I kind of hit on a little bit what I was talking before about, you know, when you're going in to a place that has absolutely no film infrastructure. So yeah. that, that's, that's a beginning. 
And when you're in the jungle and you're building everything, and you know, we're building boats, we're sinking boats. And it was handmade. We started off by saying day by day, and then it was scene by scene. By the end of the shoot, it was shot by shot. And, you know, it's true that, you know, you would have these monsoons that would come and wash away the sets. These things would happen, and you would have to learn to flex and go with it. There was a point of, I think the point when I realized these were crazy was, Heine said, okay, here's the situation. I was going to drive, I said, I'll drive the boat. I'm pretty good with boats. And I'll drive the camera boat. So we'll make a camera boat. We'll rig a crane on the front, which is like a metal pole with a hothead, bamboo. Mm-hmm. Hold it. And they'll put a monitor in front of me in the motor. And then I can, because I couldn't translate to a boat driver who's never been on a film set, also because of the sound or rolling sound, how to put the boat, where to get next to the actors. It was easier to do it myself. And so Jaime said, okay, we'll do that. And, and then you go in the boat, and it looks really peaceful and ideal. You've got these really strong currents, not to mention you can't capsize because it's the best of the crocodile, the river. And so he said, well, why don't you, the boat driver will be your middle name, which is Richard. <laughs> and the truck will be Michael. <laughs> so, so when we, you know, so if I say go right, Richard, Richard, right, you know, then we'll, we'll understand this. So the whole shoe was this, you know, it was Richard and then there was Michael, you know? And so I realized I was crazy at the end when I was sitting there and it was near the, Jonathan's delivering this really poignant end in the boat and he's standing in ankle deep water and the boat is slowly sinking. But then I realized our boat is sinking even faster at this point. <laughs> and I'm starting to tell Richard to slow down, and I'm talking out loud to my other half, giving him directions. And that's when I realized that we crossed that barrier. You know? Oh so my it's, God! It's it's very telling in the sense of you know, and we never lost our sense of humor on any of us. You know, we would, you couldn't, you know, you would have to be able to smile at this in the end. But it was made by sheer willpower at certain points, you know, and that, you know, hopefully that shows. But it was those. Yeah, you simply say it was the hardest thing I ever did. I can tell you that, you know, the, the amount of people that just didn't make it to that came back, um, you know, that didn't come back, sorry, you know, that left. So it was, a, it was a challenge, but I think that through that, you know, we, there were, having not done that, we would not have opened ourselves up to these moments of just, you know, really epic beauty, you know, that, that, that would just happen, you mm-hmm. know. Did you bring in any kind of lights or light packages? How was your power so, source? Yeah. So anything that came in came through KL, called Room for. That's where our production service company was, was in KL. Because even them, they had never filmed in Borneo before. Mm-hmm. But it was even even the production service company that's coming from Malaysia, you know, one ways away, that's where all, all of our equipment was coming from. That's where our crew, most of the crew members were coming from. And they had great talent, great things. But once again, when they were coming, they were having to recreate everything also. Once they, you know, nothing had ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was curious, you know, from a power standpoint, you know, did you just use natural lighting or were you able to bring in lights? Yes, we had lights. We did. And it but it was fine. I mean, everything everything functioned in that way. A lot of times you simply can't... The lights were used when it was, you know, nighttime. We were never right. in daytime situations where we were 
using lights to do any sort of fill or anything like that. It would be more about negative lighting um, and reflectors and this kind of thing. Because you also, in order to get to these places, you had to maintain a real nimbleness to how you shot right. and be very mobile. Because what you're doing is you're putting all your money into getting someplace incredibly remote, and that was going to be visual. So you couldn't really take anything with you. Like the, the camera boat that I was describing, that Richard was driving, that was that was great because I could go anywhere. Until you sink it. Everything was river. <laughs> well, one last question before I let you go, Michael. This is so fascinating talking about you shooting in Borneo. Um, but one more question before I let you go. You know, what did you, with all the challenges of making Edge of the World, what did you learn about yourself? as a filmmaker that you will now take forward into future productions? What I learned about myself was my whole age to what is difficult, not just in filmmaking, but to life in general, has completely changed. And I learned that you can, I kind of learned the power of, when I say sheer willpower of something, of willing something to happen, it can really happen. It, you can really make it happen. And I think that that, you know, that, that is something, if we're talking about the actual act of making that I walked away from, was, you know, was that. But there were so many learning experiences and, and sort of um, cultural, you know, experiences as well that, that I grew as a person, you know, being there you know, you're in a very spiritual place to begin with. Mm -hmm. So you're you're growing and you're you're as long as you're always open and taking all this in, you're constantly growing. But I think as a um yeah, I, I would say that funny enough that was probably the thing that stands through the most was that. Mm. Michael, I uh, I am just so blown away by this film. It is so engrossing. It is, it's as hypnotic watching this film as this world must have been to James Brooke when he went there. Um, I, I can't wait to see what you do next. This is just oh, so outstanding. So outstanding, eye-opening, as I said at the top, from a historical level, a cultural level, um, a conservation level. Um, it just, it, it's the real deal. And my hat's off to you with this one. Oh, thank you so much. You've been really kind, and that's a, that that goes a long way. Um, you know, to assault ourselves with confidence when we hear this, it's great. Oh, and I I can't wait to talk to you again in the future about another project. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, thank you so so much. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And that was my exclusive with Michael Hausman. I know it gets a little choppy in there with the audio, but this is what happens when you have a publicist on their cell phone connecting somebody who's on Zoom with the only person that has a solid landline connection, me. Um, so cleaned it up as best as we could. So, but hopefully, um, but for those little chop, the, the choppiness there. Uh, you got a real sense of what, of not only Michael's enthusiasm, but what he went through in making this film. Again, it's available on digital and VOD, 
And I've already watched it twice. And yes, I paid once to, for the second time to see it. And now we're going to shift gears and we're going to a big, big, big welcome to Harry Mavro McCallis, filmmaker extraordinaire with his feature documentary debut, Olympia. Hi, Harry. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am so happy to be talking with you about this documentary. What a what a <laughs> what a debut! Well, I thank you so much for your kind words. This is and it's funny because first I watched uh, the documentary on Rita Moreno, and then I watched the documentary on Olympia. You know, legend to legend, and. It's it was so interesting to see the different styles of each of them, but the similarities of what Rita Moreno and Olympia faced coming up in the industry, uh, growing up in the United States, uh, Rita as an immigrant, Olympia as the daughter and granddaughter of immigrants, um, fascinating the similarities of what they faced in terms of obstacles and how they had to make their own way uh, and create exactly. their, and create their own opportunities, which Olympia really took the bull by the horns. I got to tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't get stage work. I'm going to start a theater company. Um, yeah. She, uh, what we see in your documentary is Olympia was indomitable. She was unstoppable, unstoppable, indomitable. She s said what she meant and meant what she said. Um, absolutely. You really feel like you know her and that this was a no BS documentary. Um, as you well know, so many are done where somebody's sitting there nicely and they're saying wonderful things. But you followed her around with a camera. It was all very informal, and I love that. I yeah, you know, I thank you for saying that. Um, uh, by the way, I hear my voice as an echo, so it's a little dis uh, distracting. Uh, um, you sound but, fine on this end, so I I don't oh. know. Um, yeah, so I, I had to. Do what she, um, oh, I, she's so raw and so honest that uh, I just had to, you know, um, go that that route. I didn't want to make anything, you know, shiny and uh, polished. I wanted to show her the way she is. Well, and what I love is she goes, no holds barred, no makeup, no hair done, nothing. And it's like, look, this is who, this is who I am. And take it or leave it. And that is so refreshing to see. And the fact that you capture that um, and bring it to us is wonderful. Yeah, and it was, you know, we all, when we think of our Academy Award winning actresses, we always think, or actors, we think that, you know, they've had it really well in their lives, that they managed to get there very easily. And we forget that there's a journey, and usually it's a very difficult journey, you know, for them to get there. And I wanted to showcase that because that's what makes them human. That's what, you mm -hmm. know, that's how we relate to them, you know, that, because we all struggle in our everyday life. 
And if we can just remember that there's a struggle in our life and that, you know, eventually if you just keep going, you know, maybe you will succeed. Maybe you will, you know, good things will happen to you. Then you, you have faith that you just stick on that road and, and you know, keep going. Well, you know, you were... Like a, she did. Uh, well, like she did, you also went on quite a journey to make this documentary, including how many years <laughs> yeah. was it of her telling you no? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Harry! I, talk about <laughs> stick to Wow! Yeah, she, it took her forever. I think it was anywhere between three and six months, I think, that I was trying to like, convince her to set, to do this. Uh, she kept saying no, and then when she did say yes, um, she we filmed her for three years, and then it took us another four years after that to raise money and and edit, um, you know. And then we had our festival run, and then COVID happened when when the film was supposed to have its theatrical release, and that didn't happen. So it's been a, a journey, a, a, like it's almost like ten years now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, something that's interesting, because of the fact that you followed Olympia around for three years before you even got into post, um, that woman was always on the go. She traveled. She was nonstop. So, you know, how'd you do on your frequent flyer miles trailing her around here? <laughs> you know, I always joke around that, that, you know, American Express sponsored the... The filming of Olympia. (laughs) (laughs) If it wasn't for American Express, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, But yes, the frequent flyers was good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one of the great things you do is, number one, all of your footage is very much cinema verite styling. Yes. But you also incorporate, and this had to be very tricky and time-consuming, uh, in the edit process, you have a lot of family archival footage. You have a lot of interviews, really poignant, heartfelt interviews. It's like my heart stopped, you know, with Lynn Cohen talking because we just lost Lynn not too long ago as well. Um, yes. So, yeah, and, you know, and still it's fresh. We just lost Olympia a month ago. So, you know, there is so much heart here. But then you've got your interview footage. You have all of your footage traipsing around the globe with Olympia. Um, But then all this archival family footage and photographs. How much did you have, had you amassed? And how helpful was Olympia in getting you the family materials as busy as she is? So we had we I filmed about two hundred and fifty hours. Wow! And that's including everything with the archival um, archival material. And the archival material, the video was given to me later uh, in the years by her brother. Her brother called me because Olympia said, "No, I don't have any video stuff. I have nothing." And then. <laughs> a, a, Apollo wrote, uh, called me one day and said, hey, Harry, I have this like Super 8 uh, reels that we filmed back in the day. I mean, I don't even know if they're usable or if they're burned or, you know, do you want to take a look at them? And I was like, oh, my God, yes, I do. 
And so I went to California and I took the reel straight to the developer. And, you know, a few days later we had the footage and I was like, oh, my God, this is gold. Wow. Um, and then her assistant, um, her old assistant said to me, Patrick, he said, listen, did you check in the attic in her apartment, like on top of the coats? <laughs> and I was like, no, I said, I didn't check in the attic. And so I went back and I went, you know, with the ladder, went, you know, put myself in the attic and I started looking. And that's where I found all the VHS tapes, which is all the like behind the scenes at the Academy Awards in mm-hmm. 1987. Mm-hmm. All that was in the attic. Oh, my God. Well, and yeah. that behind... And the photograph was... No, go ahead. Again? No, go ahead, Harry. No, and the photographs were at her house. I okay. I went many times to her apartment, and I started going through. She was very organized with her photographs, albums, specific albums with specific things. So, you know, I she gave me access to everything, and I've, you know, I've gone there like five, six times, and I just scanned everything. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, now the family has a permanent archive of all of her photos. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I'm so thrilled. I am yeah, I was tickled watching the behind the scenes footage from the uh April 1988 Oscar ceremony when she was nominated and then went on to win for best supporting actress for her performance in in Moonstruck. The whole getting ready, and she had no eyelash glue. And it's we, we think <laughs> Faye Dunaway is in the hotel, and her husband, Louie, actually called down to the front desk and asked them, hey, we think Faye Dunaway is in the hotel. Can somebody check with her and see if she has some kind of glue, this, this glue? I don't know what it is, but glue that, <laughs> that, you know, women need for their eyes or something. That was... <laughs> Harry, this stuff is gold. This is hilarious. I still, I've watched the film a thousand times, and I, I laugh every single time when when that scene comes up, especially when they're trying to figure out where they can get the glue. And this guy in the room says, "Well, it's either Faye Dunaway or um, Elton John will probably yeah. have it." And everybody starts. <laughs> I mean, just yeah. hilarious hilarious and these these are the moments that really humanize somebody and you know whenever you're doing a documentary this is what makes it relatable to the average person because you know the makeup is the makeup and the facade are stripped away and they're they're just like us as we're running around the house it's like oh my god oh my god where's my shoe um so you know, that humanizes, and it also shows this light comedy, you know, that everybody has some comedic moments in their life. And then you very keenly, you balance that with beautiful poignancy, especially when you go to Greece with her, and she's visiting the very places where her ancestors are from, where her family came from. And you have a complete tonal shift that is very reflective, very quiet. Um, you have that beautiful seacoast uh, sequence where a sea turtle has been rehabilitated and is being released into the Aegean Sea, and she's watching it. And I love how she's saying, 
get get up closer. Get up closer. Get the camera up closer. Um, <laughs> and you know, she it, it in so much of this film, it's like she's always directing. Uh, yeah. she's always directing. But how challenging was it for you to find this beautiful balance within this film to show us the the effervescence and the ebullience you know when she's on the phone with her cousin Michael Dukakis after winning the Oscar and she still doesn't believe it um and yeah. you know then when she gets very somber and you ask her about does she think about death and her ruminations on that uh or when she's talking about her grandmother or uh, you know various aspects of her life you find this great balance I'm curious for you, um, sitting in the editing bay, watching this, how difficult was it to find that balance, Harry? It, it was very difficult. I mean, it literally took us two years of editing to find it because it was trial and error. And I wanted it to be, it's not a, it's not a typical biodoc where there's like a, like a narration, like a linear Right. She was born here, and then she did this, and then she did that. It was all about the essence. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was really important to showcase who she is, what she feels, what she thinks, how she navigates through the world. Um, and so that made it extremely difficult for me. Um, but it was also very rewarding to be able to share this with the world. I feel like when you watch it, you truly get, who this woman was like mm -hmm. an old uh, uh, you know an all-encompassing uh essence of olympia mm -hmm. but uh you know and i wanted to focus on the things that are important to me which is you know how do i navigate my life what do i think about death what do i think about sex and my relationship to my husband to my friends to my work you know all the stuff that we think about but we might not talk about often was really important and so I knew from the get-go that that's what I wanted to do and that's why we decided that we had to shoot it Cinema Verite. I wanted, I, at the beginning we didn't want any talking heads. We wanted to do a film without talking heads but then I was like you know what let me just film people because there's a lot of you know celebrities in the film like you know we have Whoopi Goldberg, Laura Linney um, and let me just get them so I have them. And then you start talking to them and they have like amazing things to say. So you're like, oh, you know, how do I combine the two without losing this like flowy feel of like following Olympia? So we kind of like concentrated the talking head um, in certain areas mm -hmm. where they're talking about her work ethic um, and her theater experience and all that stuff. So it, it was challenging, but it was very rewarding. I wouldn't have done it any differently. If I had to do it again. Oh, and that's something that you focus on uh, for a good portion of the film because it was something very important to her. And that was theater work, the stage. Um, yes. And so many of us, yes, we got to see her on TV. Yes, we got to see her in, in groundbreaking performances like Tales of the City. And then, of course, um, you know, in Steel Magnolias. Um, yes, we all do. We love Olympia more than her luggage. Um, <laughs> you know, and Moonstruck, we know those seminal moments, but her stage performance, and you can see 
you know, going back a couple decades with the footage that you obtained, her that was her passion. Stage was her oh, yeah. real passion. And that's, I mean, and, that's and something that's we didn't get to start, see. That's why we start the film where she says, she gets that envelope and she says, oh, the such and such theater is, you know, offering to pay me $542 a week plus health insurance. <laughs> you know, like, that's the life of the theater actor. Yeah. Yet that's the life that she chose to to do. Like, she would get go from theater to theater to theater play and get minimal pay, but the reward, you know, it was so rewarding to her that it didn't, she wasn't doing it for the money. It was her passion. And it was her passion because in theater, she was able to expose herself and um, analyze herself and find new elements about herself that she didn't know before based on the characters that she was doing mm-hmm. and the relationships with, you know, the writer, the director, and and, the, and her fellow actors. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and you managed to get footage of some of the most powerful performances um, and productions. You know, The Cherry Orchard is amazing. Um, yeah. and, and to see, you know, little bits of that and to see some of her other works and also to see her teaching theater students um, yep. and, and the way that she's driving. It's like, no, no, that is not what's driving you. Look again. Look again. <laughs> well, yeah, she was saying she was saying just take a risk. Like, yeah. what are you worried about? We're just we're just rehearsing. We're in a basement on Clinton Street. Like, just take the risk. But, you know, that begs the question, when you look at footage like that, where she's telling her students, take the risk, how, how did that resonate with you making this film? Because being your first feature documentary, after coming out of shorts and music videos and some commercials, you know, you were taking a big risk here with this documentary. Uh, you know, that's a great question, Debbie, because... Um, she, in a weird way, as I was making the film, I was getting inspired by her. I, 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 I also, when I got to the editing room, I was already uh, uh, inspired by her journey, the darkness that she had to go through as a person. And, and that, I think that affected the end result. You know, me not wanting to do a shiny, shiny documentary, I think was like, oh, my God. Here's this woman who is so raw and honest and has gone through so much and managed to get, you know, where she is. I think I want my documentary to kind of like uh, focus on that as well. And, you know, how I live my life and how I wanted to be with my husband and how like everything was has changed since, you know, from from doing uh, taking part of this journey. I'm a completely different person now than I was before I met her. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, as a filmmaker, Harry, when did you, when did the documentary structure start to take shape for you? Was it when you got in the editing bay or as you were going, were you getting some real gems, finding some real gems that you, you would tag either mentally or actually physically tag and say, this must I must include this. There were there were definitely some um, you know pearls in there. For example, the turtle, 
or mm-hmm. her going into the amphitheater, the ancient amphitheater, and before women in Greece. Like, those were moments that I was like, okay, these are going to be definitely in the film. But everything else, we just, you know, you know, we would, because it was per location, so I would start editing, like, when we went to Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. I would edit scenes from there. And certain scenes didn't work out. Other scenes, you know, did. But then when I put them within the film, they just didn't fit really well. So there was a lot of, like, you know, with 250 hours uh, of, of <laughs> footage, there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it, you know, and stuff that I absolutely loved. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to have those 90 minutes that work, that tell yeah. a certain story that you want to tell. Well, I have to tell you, one of the most powerful moments in the film comes in that third act in Greece where you're cutting. She's essentially it's a voiceover. Um, Obviously, you know, you've been talking to her, the two of you just randomly talking and you're capturing this. But you basically have this almost as a voiceover and you're intercutting as she's walking up a hill of the ancient ruin and you're cutting back to old family movies and then back to walking up the hill. And that's essentially that beautiful metaphor of what her life was, of constantly climbing that hill. And that that scene just sums up Olympia perfectly. And that scene took us forever to figure out. Like, because we, we loved the footage, but we couldn't make it work. Um, just with the footage, because there wasn't much conversation that was happening. So, you know, she starts talking about her ancestors and and the connection that she had to the place and to her ancestors. And then Mm -hmm. it just... And also, we were there... The the ruins were for Mycenae, you know, the kingdom of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, who she played Clytemnestra many times in her life. So it was, you know, it just worked that, you know, the ancient ruins um, got her thinking about her ancestry. Yeah, no, it's exquisite. And the fact that it's as she's walking up the hill um, and you're going back and forth, that that metaphor spoke so, it just speaks so loudly, Harry. It's exquisite. But Thank you, you. When did you bring in Paul Cantalone to do your scoring? Because I got to tell you, you've the score is at it's beautiful. You know, we have something very symphonic and very quiet in that third act. <clears throat> and with the turtle sequence, of course, when she equates herself to the turtle's journey back to the sea. Um, but early on, earlier on, it's more whimsical, but we continually have uh, instrumentation and composition that harkens to her Greek roots and music of Greece. So I'm curious how soon you brought Paul in uh, to compose for you because it really, the score, it just works so beautifully. Yeah, we we basically were almost close to a final cut um, and I brought him in to the studio and he watched the film we spoke about, you know, what I wanted, you know, that I wanted simple like piano and maybe like one more instrument. And I wanted a little bit of like a, a Greek ethnic sound, but not too much. 
Um, and I also discussed that I don't want music from beginning to end because a lot of films have a lot of music. And to me, um, it gets tiresome. Like I felt like yeah. I wanted the music when it was necessary. Um, so yeah, he came back with stuff and it was just stunning. It just, you know, everything changed once you put the music in there. Um, and, and it, it was a dream come true because my, my editor at the time, when I, when we were trying to figure out which composer we wanted to work with, I said, he, I said, well, who do you think? And he goes, well, my number one choice would be Paul Cantillon, who did, you know, uh, the diving bell and the butterfly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shoot. I was like, I don't know if we can get Paul Cantillon, you know? <laughs> so I went out and I tried and I found his manager and then, you know, he accepted to see us and we met and showed him the trailer. He's like, yes, because I want to, I want to do this. So it was an incredible, wow, and, and you know, it was amazing to to work with him because he's just so talented and so easy to work to work with. And I just love that he has quite a few little motifs that recur within within the composition within the score. Um, Olympia has her own little motif that I I hear recurring periodically throughout yep. the documentary and I, I just love that it's so identifiable um, and it and it speaks to her personality um, yes. yeah I think yes. Paul I'm did so glad you, I'm so glad you felt that that you that you you know you sensed it and it made you feel things uh, that makes me happy you know on every on every level this is such you know there's a casualness to this documentary. Um, there's a no-nonsense, every-woman sensibility to it. Um, it's just very welcoming. There's nothing standoffish. We don't feel what you have succeeded in doing is you make us feel like we were sitting there in the apartment with you when, yeah. when you're talking with Olympia. We were there with you yeah. on the on the bus, on the tram, um, stopping in Lesbos to talk to the little children on the street. Um, there, there's no bu there's no buffer there. You know, it was one of those Walter Cronkite "You are there" moments. Is how yeah. you feel <laughs> watching this documentary. Um, yeah, and I I think with somebody like Olympia, that is just so key. So key to feel that and to feel the earth. You know, I thank you for saying all that. And, and I just feel so I'm so grateful that I was able to capture her and create this film, you know, and share it with her and her family before she passed away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because now we have it now it's yep. out there and and, and the world can know about Olympia in a different way and not just with Moonstruck and Still Magnolias but you know a whole rounded version of who Olympia Dukakis is yes now we know that when she goes to the grocery store she eats the free samples like the rest of us <laughs> I, you can't get you can't get more earthy and and every person than that you know <laughs> but these are the things you 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 include these little things and it's like hey 
Okay, I don't need to be embarrassed if I do that. Olympia Dukakis goes and does that in the store. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm Well, cur- and also, um, to me, one of my favorite scenes is, is after she wins the Oscar and they're interviewing her mother. Yeah. And <laughs> they, <laughs> they ask her, you know, did you ever think that, you know, Olympia was going to, you know, be so successful and no. get an Academy Award? And, you know, her mother just turning very... You know, sure. You know, assured of herself, saying, "Nope, nope, I never did. I just didn't think that she was that talented." <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's. I mean, I, I'm watching that, and I'm like, okay, that could have been my mother sitting there. Nope, yep. nope, <laughs> never gonna be anything. Nope, nope, nope. You know, you have these gems that you find in there, and you, and you really, and. You, they punctuate certain moments in Olympia's life, and you know we laugh as we see them, and then we go into something else. But you really hone in on those kind of moments. The eyelash glue, um, you know, her mother. Nope, she's not talented enough. You know, things like yeah. you know Olympia even equating herself to a, a sea turtle. Um, you all these little things, and you have found the perfect pacing to include them. So you lift us up, we come back down to more somber moments, more pay attention moments. You lift us up again, you make us laugh, take us back as we're focusing. You really constructed this very, very nicely, Harry. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm really curious what did Olympia think of this documentary when you showed it to her? You know, we, we, we screened it at her apartment. She invited 12 of her girlfriends. Um, so we sat down and we pressed play. And then I was a nervous wreck <laughs> for 90 minutes. I was like, Oh my God, she's going to hate it. Um, and then the, the film ended and people started clapping and, you know, everybody wanted to talk to me. And all of a sudden I hear her voice saying, where's Harry? Where's Harry? And, you know, I said, hey, I'm here. And I went there and uh, she had tears in her eyes. And she's like, Harry, I, she goes, I don't know what I was waiting to see, but this wasn't it. And uh, she said, it was so beautiful. And I mean, it was a, this film was about me and even I wanted to see what was going to happen. Wow. And I started, I burst out crying because there was so much tension and I couldn't stop. I was like hysteric. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, and Olympia is one of those actors and she is, she has said this countless times over her career. She does not watch herself. She doesn't. She hates watching herself yes that's why i was also an additional thing to be stressed about because <laughs> she was not wearing makeup she's not wearing wigs or you know somebody else's clothes she wasn't in character yeah absolutely yeah and we we even see her with no eye gl- i you know eyelash glue i mean come on you can't get more <laughs> naked than that you know one last question before i let you go harry this is so lovely talking to you about this you know what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you will now take into future projects of which I hope we will see more um, biographic documentaries uh, from you. You know, I think what I've learned is that is to trust 
my uh, intuition and that um, I'm not I'm I'm more interested in in showing the essence of people. There's there's wonderful documentarians who do political documentaries or social issue documentaries. Like I love human beings, and I you know even in my everyday life when I meet people, I I'm the weird guy that will sit <laughs> next to someone and I'll be like, start asking really deep questions. <laughs> You know, what do you think about this? And what do you know? What was your experience like? Where did you, you know, where did you grow up? You know, blah blah blah. What was your relationship to your mother? Like, that's what I love, and and it's and I just have to follow what I love doing, you know. And I'm so that's I think that's what I learned that just stick to the thing that you love and keep doing it. Well, I for one cannot wait to see what you do next, Harry. Um, this is just so thoroughly enjoyable it is fascinating it's insightful it's fun it's heartwarming there's great poignancy um and it's human it's human and you just you. you did an amazing job and everybody can see this because the doc is on apple tv digital and on demand now yes and if they go to our website uh, olympiathefilm.com they can find the links to where they can watch it. Oh, Harry, thank you so, so much. I can't wait to talk to you again in the future. Me too, Debbie. This was wonderful. Thank you so much oh, for having me. Oh, anytime. Open invitation, Harry. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. You too. And that was writer, director, editor, producer Harry Mavra McAllis uh, talking about his documentary on Olympia Dukakis called Olympia. All right, that is all the time we have today. Of course, we ran over again. Um, so, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.